is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. The podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Each episode features a topical discussion and a bit of banter, or an interview with an interesting guest. You can download episodes from SoundCloud and get stuck into the discussion over at our dedicated Facebook page. We also do Twitter, and you can find out more on many of the topics discussed over at the Post-Traditional Buddhism website. So, here we are, folks. The third and final discussion, chat, interview, presentation, whatever you want to call it, with uh, Mr. Hokai Sabul, our Croatian guest, who's been very generous with his time, offering up three well, material really for three different episodes. This one specifically was his idea, a follow-up to the first two discussions we had to basically provide an opportunity for listeners to send in questions. Now, many of the questions were related to this whole idea of mysticism, which, you know, it's a word that triggers a lot of different responses, both for those who are more learned in the ways of the Western intellectual tradition and have a background in uh, philosophy or theology or some sort of religious studies and would know that that word is charged with a lot of social, cultural and historical meaning. Now, we didn't get a lot of that, which is kind of nice really, because um, as you will have noticed by listening to Hokai's talk, talks and discussions, uh, he is very intelligent, but he tends to be far more interested in many ways, uh, similar to folks like uh, Ken McLeod, in the practical implications of working with ideas and practices. And that comes through again in today's discussion. There are some interesting ideas, there is some interesting explanation, but um, I mean, I think Hawkeye, and he said it himself at the end, which you'll hear, he struggles a little bit in answering these questions without having the person asking them in front of him. And why is that? Not because he can't give a general generic answer, but because answers generally make more sense when they respond to the specifics of the person answering them. So even a word like mysticism uh, or mystery, which you may remember if you were paying attention, was given out in the first uh, episode, I believe. What does it mean, really? Yeah, it's not just, oh, it's that word that refers to the tradition of Europeans for, you know, I don't know, 300 years at some point in the Middle Ages. Actually, it's a word that's being put to use with a specific intention and with a specific usage in mind. And of course, all of these ideas that center around praxis or practice, well, they tend to be hands-on, right? And it's not that the theory gets discarded or left aside or ignored. It's there. It's there, but it's put to use. And Hokai, for one, is interested in what happens when you put ideas into practice and practices to use. And you'll hear that throughout. Um, for a quick reminder, for those who don't know, Hokai is uh, Croatian. He, is, um, he has a, well, a long history involved with Buddhism, primarily with Shingon. That's perhaps what he's most famous for. He's also became well known for his involvement in the Buddhist geeks, participating in conference activities when they were on, uh, being interviewed himself by Buddhist geeks and actually carrying out a few interviews himself, which were thoroughly interesting. Uh, some of those were with one of our guests, David Chapman, who gets a mention in this episode too. Old Dave is getting everywhere. 
Now, we will be continuing with the Imperfect Buddha podcast after the summer, so we'll be back in September. We're finally going to get around to doing a series on meditation, and we've got a few interesting guests coming up too, and a couple of surprises. It's nice to have a surprise or two, so watch our Twitter feed space. If you're worried about SoundCloud disappearing, which is what one of our listeners mentioned might be happening, they seem to be reasserting their desire to stay on the scene. If that should happen, we will be hosting all of the podcasts uh, at the post-traditional Buddhism website, so just go there. You can also go there over the summer if you wish. I'm on holiday from two of my daytime jobs for a couple of months, but hey, I've got a whole list of things I've been wanting to write about but have been way too busy. So come over and check them out. Uh, one of the first pieces is going to be uh, a new, a new, a new. It's always new, isn't it? Well, maybe it's not. A look at Tonglen, that old giving and taking practice. I've been experimenting it, with it myself. And I think we can do something with it that might be worth, well, checking out. So check out the post-traditional Buddhism website. Um, if you're interested in the coaching work I do, go over to oconnellcoaching.com or go to the same aforementioned site and get stuck in. Um, that's all for now, folks. Enjoy the episode. So uh, welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. This is, uh, I think this is our fifth round. We've had quite a few. I don't know. I'm not counting. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm counting. I think yeah. we're on that number. So this is the episode where we're going to follow up on some of the questions that people posted or sent in in response to the first two episodes. We've got a list, and we've actually got a list of 18 different questions, more or less. I don't know if we necessarily need to go through them all, but we can handle quite a few of them, I think. Um, yeah. Should we start from the top? If that's the way you prefer. Okay, yeah. then that's what I'm going to do. So we did this, we, we had a discussion about this at one point, but it would be useful to start on it again. The first one here is, um, has Hokai played around with any other word instead of mystic or mystical. Um, I personally have no problem with the word, but in conversation, it seems that many people really struggle to relate to the word without thinking of hocus-pocus spirituality or magical thinking. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate question. I'm not sure I can answer it uh, intelligently. Um, the point here is that... Uh, a distinction that is being made by using this kind of terminology, it's, it's a distinction that would not be uh, obvious or available to someone who doesn't have some experience already. So I think that where the distinction of mystical versus uh, exoteric religious and uh, all sorts of utilitarian approaches on the other hand you know whether we call them therapeutic or 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 self-growth or self-personal you know improvement or whatever we want to call these um all these other things that have a specific idea about where practice should take you and what it should be producing in your life right what kinds of experiences you should be having when you're practicing and all these kinds of things they need to be put to one side uh, together with, as I said, you know, religious uh, belonging, uh, becoming part of something, of a tradition, of a community, of a, 
of, of you know of a set of customs of having an identity, which is I think a central part of of religious mm-hmm. impulse. You know, to have mm-hmm. a, to have a something to put in front of your name, uh, to be a part of this uh, better group of people than other people, and and to be a part of something that is true. You know, that is true, both historically and spiritually. It's true. It's real. It's not made up by some guy. It's true. It's true. I sound like Trump a little bit. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. The very best. Yeah. Very best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that's the idea of the past becoming a real refuge, right? In, in, in a sort of, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, well, that's, I don't necessarily mean in the spiritual or Buddhist sense, but I mean in the sense that it allows you. Oh, it allows you to idealize. Yeah. yeah, it allows you. It encourages idealization. Yeah, yeah. Just as the therapeutic approach uh, encourages this utilitarian, you know, you know, if it works, it's real. You know, <laughs> nice. <laughs> if it works, come on. It's not. It's not. It's not a. It's not a knife. You know. Or or a, or a or a car or a, a condom, you know. <laughs> if it works, is it broken? You know, <laughs> come on. So, it, you know, if we look at that distinction, if it's a path of continual discovery, combined with devotion, combined with a curious exploration, uh, it all sounds fine. But actually, there's a lot of struggle there in discovering how how bad it gets once you scratch the surface or once you stop trying to make it better mm-hmm. or trying to make it work, you know, or trying to make it fit with whatever expectations you have of your practice. So you're never actually fully there. You're always expecting something to move for you, right? Mm-hmm. You're not really there, are you? So when we make that distinction, there has to be some substantial experience one would expect or, or an incredible amount of you know, natural talent sensitive to this kind of basic distinction. So, yeah, there could be other words uh, used. Um, you know, historically, people have used all sorts of metaphors, but uh, to, to distinguish it, some people would say that's what, you know, Buddha, Buddha Dharma is about. It's not about building religious continuity. It's not about uh, helping people uh, going through life with more mindfulness. It's not about uh, you know uh, teaching people how to behave properly or uh, harmlessly. It's not about developing social harmony and group cohesion, understanding, patience. You know, a forgiving, compassionate attitude with all forms of sentient life. You it, know, sounds, it sounds like you're discounting it's the a, majority of what's being sold in Dharma books these days. Uh, yeah, well, people have to do their marketing, you know, I understand that. Mm. But this, I, I'm not saying the, the end is nigh, you know, or something like that. Uh, I'm not being, trying to be catastrophic just for purpose of... There's something also called negative marketing. You know, there's a shock value right. to doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing, of course. Uh, of course, there's a place for all these activities. Group dynamics uh, support all these nice things, you know, having a, an extended spiritual family and all that. But there's fa- it's family. Mm-hmm. It's family. And children need family. And grown, grown-up people 
tend to look for their own way sooner or later. Yeah, but that, let's not insist on that too much. So if, if we don't want to use the word mystical, we, we are stuck with some of the more, uh, more obvious choices like, I don't know, something pretentious such as deep, something uh, more X-Gen like hardcore or, you know, some, you know some, some other such quips. You know, that for me don't work because they, you know, they sound good, but it, it also somehow means that all the other things are either superficial or soft or whatever, you know, which I don't think it's always the case. I mean, mm -hmm. therapy can be very deep. It can be very hard. And uh, religious practice can also be demanding, right? Uh, so when we make this choice of, of using the word mystical, it's not about, I mean, the bad rap the 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 mystical uh and and the, and the mystery uh, has had in mainstream discourse is mostly due to is mostly due to its um connection with crazy beliefs superstition wacky logic things like that crystals i don't know stonehenge yeah you're from there i am so yes that's true uh astrology yeah. you know well Yeah, these these all these things I would I would put in the religious category actually, mm -hmm. whether new age or old age. Yeah. All these things are not new, you know. They have been done for many more thousands of years than the religions that we have now. Mm -hmm. Stars, you know, stones, trees, tree hugging, things like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, na na nature immersion, you know, these kinds of things, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there comes a rational outlook, an analytical outlook that aspires to be more scientific, you know, more, more logical, more, more, you know, kind of clear thinking, things like that. Uh, and then there's a kind of a polarization in this crazy discourse of blame uh, game saying this is true, this is false. And this is where the mystical gets its uh, bad rap. One word to differentiate uh, this kind of practice in the West has been contemplative. So some people would say there's Christianity, right? And then there's contemplative Christianity. But this same contemplative Christianity has been called mystical Christianity. Okay. And esoteric Christianity. Yeah, yeah. So these are Western ideas. Uh, these kinds of distinctions are not as clear-cut in, in, in Asia. Just as particularly in the Buddhist tradition, philosophy is not a separate endeavor from meditation practice, at least some meditation practice. Of course, there have been, you know, people in the past who have done mostly thinking, and there have been people in the past who have done mostly austerity practices, and there, you know, people who have done mostly silent meditation practice, people who've done mostly devotional practice. So the emphasis is there maybe even 90% of someone's practice. But the separation between these uh, categories of ethics, philosophy, and contemplative practice uh, has never been taken seriously in, in the Buddhist uh, world. Mm. Uh, even though in some, for example, Japanese styles of practice, you have people who specialize in, in study, people who specialize in ritual and people who specialize in meditation. Yeah. And they know very little about the other categories. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but that's not, you know, that's, that's not how, how, how it's supposed to be. Let's, let's say, let's put it that way.
right? That's not how it's supposed that's to be. That's our word, yeah. yeah. It's supposed to be a certain yeah. way. So, yeah, so the basic approach is one of bringing these things together from the very beginning. Mm. You've got to have some idea about what you're doing. Mm. Then you have to actually do it. And then you have to follow up with behaviors that reflect what you're doing in, in, your, in, in your actual practice, right? Yeah. So, going back to the Western ideas, you know, uh, contemplative is, is, one, is one word one could use, but contemplative points, usually points away from action. And the word mystical doesn't point away from action. It brings together action and stillness. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, uh, we could use a word uh, such as esoteric, but that's also something that has recently been, uh, uh, you know, mired with, with, with crystals and rainbows and, uh, and power places and uh, not to mention, you know, hallucinogenic properties of plants, mm -hmm. things like that. You know, there's an esoteric tarot card reader and these kinds of things are called esoteric, right? Mm -hmm. There's an esoteric festival where people sell certain electromagnetic devices, you know. That's also called esoteric. Yeah. Well, I think within the question, there's, there's something about how to have a conversation about these things with people where you wouldn't be labeled as uh, hyper-spiritual or crazy or... I mean, as, as the person asked, you know, you know, I want to have a conversation with people without being labeled as hocus pocus and spiritual and guilty of magical thinking. So I wonder to what degree the, convers the, the question is about operating at two levels. There's the level that we're talking about now, <laughs> but we're unpacking things and we're having a serious discussion. Yeah, sure. And then there's how do I talk about what I do? Oh, so because I think yeah, that yeah, the yeah. question might be about that. Well, that's an entirely different yeah. uh, pair of shoes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, why would you even want to talk about what you're doing to someone who doesn't have a clue? I mean, why? To convert them. Uh, you know, do you dis I mean, do you go to do you go to the mall and discuss your sex life? You know, <laughs> I don't think so. You know, do, do you do you go around visiting with family and friends and push down their throat your political opinions? Not necessarily, you know. There's a way of talking about everything if you have someone to talk to. So that doesn't depend on how do I, that depends on who are you talking to. So you always approximate your language to the, to the, to the space of communication that opens with the respective person. Yeah. So that's a basic kind of civil sensitivity that we developed around the age of seven. <laughs> uh, so you don't want to use the word mystical with someone who you know, uh, gets up on their rear legs when they hear it. Yeah. And, but you don't want to use the word spirituality with them probably either, or meditation, yeah. or prostration, or life is suffering, yeah. or there's a path, or I have a teacher. All these things are out, out of the window when someone will, you know, kind of start uh, giggling when they hear the word mystical. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. there's a third problem there, mm. too is that in this day and age, there's a huge percentage of well-educated, cultured people who are spiritually emaciated. And that reflects their terminology. They have no language of expressing their basic everyday experiences that are outside of the purvey of everyday language. Because everyday language is about paying the bills. I want you, I like you. Don't do it to me. Come here. Move away. Do you have time? 
these kinds of things, right? What do you want to do for a weekend? It's conversations that, you know, elementary level children could have without any difficulty. So well-educated, you know, cultured people uh, these days have a very subtle and nuanced language to talk about art, to talk about, you know, left and right politics, to talk about this guy or that guy. But they have a very poor, uh, very, very, um, uh, you know, rhetorically narrow and shallow repertoire of discussing experience, especially significant experience, where the saliency of subject and object uh, becomes something that words fail to convey even the best words and imagine now if they have a if they have a, an impoverished vocabulary then these things are just never even mentioned people refer to it as something so that's a broader cultural problem mm-hmm. now uh you know what, what what we could call intellectual or cultural elites these days will you know will will struggle with with expressing and defining very basic spiritual events uh, such as uh, you know uh, certain certain revulsions you can feel towards certain ways of being such as uh, an incredible attraction or pull towards other kinds of being certain revelations that are very simple very raw very basic about what and how you are in this world people will then look for philosophers you know to borrow their vocabulary, to borrow their French, German, English expressions, God forbid Russian expressions, uh, and Chinese or Sanskrit expressions, you know. But most of philosophers have never really done 10, 20, 30, 40 years of practice. They haven't been part of a community, you know, doing this kind of nuanced, layered, gradual practice going deeper and deeper and deeper uh, clarifying and you know structuring things that may or may not happen along the way so uh, you know if one really gets into deeper waters one looks for you know contemplative or mystical departments in the major traditions or one uh, you know miraculously encounters a person that that takes them by the hand and brings them in touch with this you know living knowledge of what to do how to do it how to think about it how to approach it how to open to it how how bad and difficult it is and all these things Um, and yet we are stuck with these words and these words yes will not be on the front page of time you know there will be funny faces on on the front page for the next 50 years probably if we get there but you know words like mystery will not be in the you know in the in the uh, in the uh, line light you know the lights of, of of public attraction and yet you know one will use uh, and 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 bastardize all sorts of expressions like samsara it's a perfume right <sighs> isn't it yes, nirvana so. is a rock group <laughs> yeah zen is a kind of a feeling that you have when it's cool mm. and you hold your favorite drink in your hand and you watch it something that doesn't seem to stop and it feels good then it's called zen at least here 
We were in such a Zen, they say, you know, it was so Zen. So, you know, words that could describe something serious do penetrate the mainstream vocabulary, but then they become bastardized mm -hmm. signifiers for something completely irrelevant, like smell or, or an emotion of being, you know, at ease, you know, being high on, 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 on or, or stoned. Uh, has suddenly become Zen. I mean, what's next? God? While you feel good, you yell God? That has happened before, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Happens often somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, intimate spaces. When you really love someone, you scream Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... It's not a problem of the word, it's the problem of the language and how we use it and what language has become, mm -hmm. what, what, uh, you know, how much, how much the uh, modern and postmodern communicative space has erased all boundaries between words that, that are used for, for practical purposes of everyday life, other, other words which are used to explain how things work, and then a third category of words which are better whispered and, and given some respect and used with, you know, with a lot of uh, deliberation, I would say, and sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about language in its living aspect. Yeah. Living language requires a relationship, requires oh, yeah. this sort of elaboration. Yeah. I, I, you know, I get the sense again that this question is probably coming from the desire to find a kosher term which avoids, you know, the symbolism of these, these terms as, you, as you've described them. But why don't we move on to the next question? You know how it goes. <laughs> so the next one I've got here is one that is interesting. What are the axioms that underlie the mystical approach as you discussed it in the last two podcast episodes? Yeah. Uh, or what are the assumptions that drive the mystical approach? Assumptions? Very few. Assumptions may be that you, that you struggle at a very basic level that you know that you you get it it's not that you're willing to admit it that's that's not enough you you just know uh and this kind of knowledge may come and go but it's uh sufficiently disturbing to not let you just keep going so you're looking for a better way so that's the only assumption and you have tried everything, you know, in the range of what's normally available as a solution to, to looking for a better way. So, you know, typically one would go back to the story of the historical Buddha, you know, how he had everything and, you know, he, you know, his father took care of everything and then he enjoyed everything, but then suddenly it's all felt, you know, felt um, rotten somehow. So something happens at a certain point. That's, a cert that's the only assumption. The other assumption would be that indeed something can be done, right? When you come to that place. It's not just that you're depressed and going through a deep, deep crisis, but actually it's fertile ground, uh, fertile ground for something to be done, right? For a, for a new sensitivity to emerge, for a new kind of uh, awareness to, to, to be discovered and developed and, and cultivated and deepened. That's the other assumption, right? And the third assumption, maybe, could be that you could use help. 
you know, trying to do that. You don't have to rediscover the, you know, the Holy Grail or whatever the metaphor is, right? Uh, as the Buddha said, that he rediscovered this, uh, you know, Dharma as an old city forgotten in the deep jungle, right? So he didn't even claim he discovered, you know, he discovered something for the first time, right? Uh, so these would be some of the assumptions. These are barely mystical. I mean, it's common knowledge, these kinds of assumptions being made. But then they become watered down, these assumptions, you know. <laughs> they become watered down by how they are applied. So the axioms could... There could be a range of things, and I'm sure other people uh, espousing the mystical approach uh, would would probably disagree in detail or in the whole, you know, the whole thing of what I'm about to say. But there it is, you know. I think the primacy of practice is is the first axiom. Uh, so practice is not a uh, necessary evil, <laughs> as in the utilitarian, you know, approach. Because if we can do it with a pill, as some people suggest, you know, could be possible <laughs> in the future. If we could do it with a tinfoil hat, you know, as I suggest, could be a funnier way than a pill. Uh, then, you know, why sit for 10,000 hours, right? If we can change some brain chemistry and experience the big E, you know, why not? Let's do it. Let's let's uh, you know. Let's have everyone drink the pill, uh, or you know, let's make it a human basic human right. You know, everyone has the right for the pill. Who's gonna produce the pill? Elon Musk? I don't know. Uh, someone's gonna make good money uh, by you know doing the big E pill. So you know whatever you know we can be you know kidding about this or whatever. I think the the, the primacy of practice of basic practice of, you know, it's, it's, it's very basic and raw and very kind of uh, primitive, but it's basically, you know, holding a posture, <laughs> breathing as you do that, and being present or aware of how it is to be holding a posture and breathing. That's how it starts. That's the kind of practice I'm talking about. And... <laughs> it's funny when you say it like this, but, uh, you know, is there a pill to substitute for that? I, I, I don't know. You know, is there a pill that can make that practice more efficient? Maybe, you know, lubricate your way through a little bit, right? Make it more safe so that you don't crash on the, you know, on the rocks of your insanity. Uh, yeah, there could be. There could be, you know, enhancements developed and there could be a kind of a combined way of, uh, you know, using whatever we got and all these things. I don't want to go down that road at all. I just, you know, I'm, I'm not an enthusiast uh, about either uh, chemical or technological uh, dildos that will do it for you. Uh, I think that meeting the situation unfiltered, unaided is the exact proper way to do it. Experiencing step by step what is there to be experienced, digesting it, learning how to open more and more, learning how to take more and more. That's, that's what I mean by practice. And learning to discern, you know, the ephemeral from, from what, is, uh, what is more resilient learning to discern the significant from, from you know, insignificant. Uh, we usually think what is gross and, and huge and big and what feels strongest as significant. 
but it's the other way around, you know, something that can be barely felt is usually more significant than something hitting you in your forehead. Uh, so, you know, it's just a, there's a learning curve there. Yeah. That takes, takes time. So primacy of practice would be the, the first axiom. The second thing that comes to mind is that the depth and scope of, of mystical practice is infinite. That's an axiom. So, um, this, this basically, uh, puts most so-called maps in, in perspective. Maps are usually, uh, you know, uh, lists of sequential events, at least what people in the, in the Buddhist, you know, uh, scene talk about when they talk about maps, there's the, you know, 10 ox herding illustrations, you know, there's the 16 stages of, you know, insight, there's the five bodhisattva path, you know, there's the 10 bodhisattva bumi, there's the, you know, five stages of fearlessness, there's the, some people like to talk about the four noble truths and the eightfold path as a kind of a sequential map, although that's not how it was laid out. It's just that you can't say all things all at once, so you have to say them in a kind of syntax. Syntax doesn't necessarily point to a sequential development, right? Unless you are a literate, you know, unimaginative student trying to be as faithful to the, you know, to the letter, if not to the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. I would say the second thing is this infinite scope and, and infinite uh, depth in the, in, the, in the mystical approach. There's a traditional expression for all these things, of course, but... This also means that, uh, by definition, mystical practice will include life, not, not the other way around. Uh, it's not that practice is a part of your life that you, that you find time for between your obligations. You either practice or not. If you practice, you live your life as a form of practice. And then, of course, within that, uh, you know, within that, you find time for what we call formal practice, for rehearsals, or you know, uh, <laughs> uh, developing you know basic basic skills like practicing scales on an instrument or singing. You know, la 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 la. You have to do that ten thousand times, you know, to get it right. Okay, do it. Uh, but that's not what we mean by singing, right? That's just. Uh, practicing scales, practicing your muscles, developing the, the strength in the musculature to, to squeeze and relax. That also means de developing fluency, developing, uh, you know, dexterity uh, in repeating a movement until it becomes very natural and spontaneous and relaxed so your attention can be elsewhere while you're doing that without even giving it a dot, right? It's become like second nature, so that takes time. So all these things are there, but the, the second axiom of infinite, infinite scope and, and depth is basically about allowing the life to be, to be seen as, as, as an open, open field of practice, basically. And the third axiom, perhaps, uh, has to do with, with the very nature of awakening or realization, namely that in the mystical approach, it is usually said that uh, spiritual practice doesn't end with awakening, it actually starts. Whatever follows is an open-ended, endless process. 
he it's here that some notions of literalist perfection and purity fall apart basically you get your hands dirty again and again and again no matter how clean you get them in the meantime you know so you wash your hands every day more than once i hope you know but then you get them dirty again that's what life is about and the same thing happens with 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 awakening and participating in life the same thing happens with any 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 kind of notion of purity or or perfection it's taken apart by the next next turn of events uh it becomes outdated or however you want to call it you know it becomes it becomes a a uh, place to hang out you know it becomes a stuck position you know you got to move everything moves everything changes so the third axiom would be that yes there there are definitely events that change things uh significantly sometimes dramatically sometimes in a subtle way but dramatically sometimes sometimes it's not an event it's it's a process that takes you by surprise uh, that unfolds through years sometimes even decades and you end up transformed changed but nonetheless if it's a if it's if it's an event or if it's a you know prolonged period of subtle change awakening is not something that that happens and then you're awake it's not like that it's not like getting a phd or something then you have it you know people who live awake definitely have something but i i hate using such a word you know he has it she doesn't have it you know uh we all have it just some people know it and some people you know know how to use it and some people those who go farthest you know they they are just being it they they don't even even make the distinction right one of the best uh, definitions you know of awakening is uh the end of all anxiety about non-awakening you you see how you can turn that on its head like why even bother you yes. know it could easily become like a new neo advaita thing you know like just just stop being anxious about anxious about not being awake and that's it and that's it yeah so you know Brad Pitt must have it right <laughs> yeah let's, let's not go down the road of discussing Neo Advaita okay I mean I don't know if this works as an axiom or well the, an axiom is like an underlying principle yeah right or a foundational concept yeah so I would it. say yeah the sooner you get these three points the better for you yeah yeah well an axiom there would be that it's worthwhile right that seems to be Implicit. If you find primacy of practice, infinite scope and depth, an open-ended process of awakening, meaningful and worthwhile, and if you can take that as your primary basis, you know, for approaching spiritual yeah. teachings and practices, then yeah, maybe you you have the mystical bug. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you do. <laughs> so that's that's useful as a sort of leap-off point to the next two questions. One person asks, can someone pursue all three approaches at the same time? I like the second bit they've added on here. They say, what are some of the possible adverse consequences of doing so? Um, and the second one, which is, like I said, is related, is the religious or are the religious and therapeutic approaches necessary starting points or steps for the third one? 
I, I see where this is coming from. Yeah. So, you know, saying that only the religious Buddhists can become mystical Buddhists is a little bit like saying you can only become an arhat if you're a man or, you know, you need to die and be reborn as a man. You know, there was a time and a place where people believed such things. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. kind of makes us a little bit uneasy when we say that, but... Or we, or we find it farcical. Because I remember reading that, that idea in some of the first Tibetan Buddhist texts that I came across. Yeah. And at first it was a shock, and now it just seems absurd. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it makes sense. Oh, does it now? Yes. Yeah. If you look at the people who... who who, who, oh, who wrote who, it? Who espoused such yeah, views? Okay, it yes. makes it makes perfect sense that they hold such views. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I would just say that that the three approaches, you know, uh, if if taken up simultaneously, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, I mean, th th this is not some kind of you know really really uh, convoluted, complex distinction that we're making. This is like saying, can you? Can you be someone's brother, son, and husband at the same time? Uh, so I'm saying it's a little bit incestuous, you know, to suggest the possibility of practicing these three things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. What I mean explicitly, right? So you can't do it explicitly. But in every of these three, the other two approaches may be implicit. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. So, of course, a religious person practicing prostrations or even a modicum of meditation, you know, or, or listening to dharmic teachings may find some of these things helpful in the therapeutic sense. They may find, find it, they, they experience some personal growth through that. They may find that it makes their lives better, uh, of course. But that's not the you know that's not the impetus of what why they keep 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 doing it right that's not their their core motivation that's not their that's not the basis of their relationship to their practice so what we're saying here as as you you can't do all three things because these are basically three different attitudes okay that that express and produce very different qualities of experience while doing the same thing so you know, you can use a knife to eat, you can use a knife to perform surgery, and you can use a knife to kill. I think this is a good comparison and the metaphor for the three approaches. So, uh, you can't do it simultaneously. I don't think so. I mean, you you, you got to have some really warped imagination to come up with an example where, with a single gesture of the knife, you do all three things. Uh, what is important to understand is that uh, I'm not making a value judgment on these three approaches or, or saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying that if you're, if, if you're looking for, a, if you're looking for a Buddhist practice that will uh, take you deeper into what you sense uh, needs to be um, explored, and then go deeper than that, and then go deeper than that, so that in the process you need to recalibre and, you know, re-question your basic assumptions or of, of why did you even get this started? I mean, you know, I didn't know this is going, this is going to be <laughs> this challenging and this, you know, do I really want to go down this path, you know? So, 
If you want to do that, then certain certain forms of religious uh, engagement and certain forms of therapeutic application will just not not you know not do the job. Mm-hmm. They will they will espouse a different terminology. They will espouse uh, a different pressure. They will try to uh, you know uh, uh, they, they they will try to accommodate your 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 personal likes and dislikes will just not be directed at deeply changing how you uh, live your life. I don't mean externally, but internally. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. the external stuff is a completely separate discussion. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I don't think you can do it simultaneously. They can happen simultaneously in the implicit way, which is at any point in religious uh, practice or at any point in in the, in the therapeutic self-help practice, there can take place a shift, a deep shift. Uh, like a precipice opening up, uh, a new space opening up, where you you just need to recalibrate and re-question your practice and and how you do it. And but the same thing can happen with your mystical practice too. It can go flat, or it can be corrupted by the tendency of making it work for you. You know, I th- I mean, you know, it's it's not working for me. Even when you say it like that, you know, you get a certain sense of uh, where it's going, right? It's not working for me. I want it to work for me, yeah? I don't think it can be done simultaneously. So the next question, Hokai, which links nicely to what you were just saying is about community. I'll read the whole thing to you. It says, uh, do you see a role for community on the mystical path? How does it or could it differ from other types of communities? And do you have any experience of this? If you go back to... uh how how communities emerged, uh, spiritual communities emerged throughout history in all cultures. <clears throat> it's it's basically two or more people gathered around the teacher. That's how it starts. I mean, people could gather around the totem, of course, you know, as Indians do, and the totem can serve as a as a pillar, a reminder of something that is central to our lives, right? But if you have a living and breathing. Uh, embodiment of you know of some degree of that which is central to your life then you would rather prefer you know referring to a living person than a totem or a brass statue of a living person yeah right well some people prefer relating to a brass statue i was going to say you were making me think of christians and churches and muslims and yeah. the pillars and yeah. yeah so that's all you know that, that exists that that exists of course people find great solace in that but if you want to relate to a living person that's more challenging and more useful you know and more 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 lifelike so this is how communities are built basically and because on a, in a mystical path there would be uh, there would be ideally uh, open access to your teacher at least, uh, you know, not necessarily 24-7, but, you know, depending on the arrangement, you could have regular access to a teacher. We can't be talking about a huge number of people gathered around a single teacher. It's just a, it's just a you know, logistical impossibility. So, I know, uh, even, if, you know, even the, I mean, the Dalai Lama can have public events in front of <clears throat> two or 20,000 people, right? But those are not his students, right? He may have three, five, seven, nine students altogether. He does have Western students who are his personal students. But those are not 3,000 people. Those are three, five, seven, nine people. And that's a community. Those people are a community. And that's how big communities get. Jesus had 12 disciples. 
the Buddha himself didn't have much much more. I mean, those those gathered around him as 500 arhats, those were disciples of his disciples. Those were second and third generation students, you know. So, I mean, when, when we're talking about the numbers, it's important to understand there, there's not much, you know, organizational challenge around putting together 12 people, right? And we don't need these huge organizations and institutions to, you know, to give birth to such vibrant little communities where many other things become possible because of an increased level in intimacy where the numbers are low intimacy can go deeper right so that's one thing to say the other thing to say is that in the west and now increasingly in the eastern world which seems to be copying every stupid mistake the west does from capitalism to uh, you know to the interpretations of buddhism sangha which is a refuge, has been translated as community. Well, this is like translating nirvana as bliss. A little bit, you know. It's completely misplaced translation. Sangha is not a community. It's communion with a very specific set of, you know, uh, reference. In the external sense, it's the robed, ordained members of who have, who have given up, you know, their... their their normal life to only pursue the practice of dharma right? that's the external sense and then goes the internal and and the, and the secret sense none of which is your group you know these days in in united states and europe people say my sangha referring to their group right well can you find refuge in your group so we see where this is going you know i mean do you take your group as a refuge from what sitting home alone a refuge from loneliness, a refuge from, you know, from, from what, a failed marriage, a refuge from being, being a, a, an unloved kid in the class, a refuge from what, you know? Why would you need a refuge in a group? So, Sangha is a refuge, it's not a group of people. The, the robed, ordained, you know, members of Buddhist clergy symbolize Sangha. They are not the Sangha, they, just, they are just an external reminder of something, of a, of, a, of a life lived fully as an expression of a path. They are reminders of that. So that's the meaning of Sangha, a life lived fully as an expression of path. That's your Sangha. And that's where you find community, with everyone you meet, with every experience that arises. That's your community, your world that you end up experiencing when living your life to the fullest as an expression of the path. That's the community where you find refuge. Not a group of people sitting around asking about the second noble truth. Am I allowed to like chocolate? You don't find refuge there. Or in the equivalent parts of your own little self. Mm. You know? Is it good to like pork? <laughs> For God's sake, you know? Go ahead. <laughs> and so, yes. Community, just like the, you know, community is, is, is an essential, uh, you know, uh, and natural expression of, of the fact that your teacher doesn't have only one student. It's theoretically possible to find a qualified, you know, gifted, capable teacher and that you are his only student. It's theoretically possible. But, you know, I would be seriously suspicious if that's the case about both of you. <laughs> so... So, so I mean, you know, community just happens when, 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 when more than two people uh, relate to a 
to, to a teacher and they become like not necessarily liking each other. You know, they can be, you know, there can be huge, you know, huge uh, disparity in their in their temperaments and views. But they, they, they are, you know, stuck with the same guy or, or, or lady, you know, from who they are learning. Mm-hmm. So they have to tolerate each other and get out of each other way as much as possible, you know. Do you get some support for your individual practice there? Yes, mm-hmm. of course. Through seeing how others are going through the same things you are, through seeing how much they struggle with something you find easy, with how, how they find easy something that you struggle with, right? And all these things. That's the kind of support. You see, you see, you know, you, you, you relate to a, to a similar or identical set of practices. So, you know, there's some, there's some discussion that can take place there uh, uh, and things like that. There can be a sense of camaraderie and all that. All that is fine and well. But organizations and groups of people are not refuge. Full stop. Okay. Even in other forms of, you know, practice, even in religion or therapy, yeah. they're not refuge. They are, they, are just, they are just the logistical answer to how to make this thing available. That's yeah. it. And it's, it's, it's much more difficult to, to have your, you know, institution funded by, 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 uh, by an unreliable billionaire, in which case you don't need members, Right. So most opt for having a, a lot of members, a few of which may indeed be millionaires or billionaires, but they are always unreliable. So the most reliable people are those who give little due membership each month, but they are loyal until their graves. Then you can make your plans. So this is how it works. So it's just a logistical solution. It has nothing to do with practice. So that's not community. That's just facilitation. Okay, the next question is about transmission. Uh, what are your views, if any, about the transmission of mystical practice? I don't know what the question means. Does it mean proselytizing? I'm is, not is, sure. Is that person aware what transmission means? Yeah, I'm not sure either. It was a short question. I wonder if it relates to this idea of pointing out instructions and that sort of thing. Yeah, these things happen and, you know... You get something, but you don't have a lot of deep practice that needs to come after that. So you also get transmission in all esoteric lineages into certain practices. You get so-called permissions to practice this or practice that, you know, which are again, you know, ridiculous translations. You don't get permission to, to uh, you know, to prostrate to a, to a deity. You don't need the permission for that, you know. And But this is how it's talked about. And then... Sometimes transmission is equated with initiation into a practice, which means it's just a beginning, right? Then at other times, transmission is used for something that comes in the end of a successful cycle of practice, which means as a kind of confirmation and giving you a certain status, perhaps even Dharma transmission or lineage transmission, where you yourself uh, become qualified to be a teacher in that style if you so prefer if you're mm-hmm. interested there will always be very fewer teachers than students you know so who cares you know that's the teacher's problem i mean most students will never become teachers you don't practice so that you will become a teacher if you do then you're the least qualified to become a teacher if you go like you know oh, i would like to teach this stuff but first i need to learn it right <laughs> Go and become a carpenter. No, you know, not if you're the, in the AKT. <laughs> yeah, go and become a carpenter. Where, yeah, well, if it's a religious tradition, then they like these kinds of ambitions, you know, because they get good proselytizers, missionary kind of zeal and all that. But in a mystical tradition, it's not about converting others, you know, and uh, it's not about persuading others to join the flock. 
or things like that. We have the real answers. You know, it's not about standing at the corner of the street and uh, push booklets into people's hands. Teachers are born from students, which basically means that a teacher is a person who is approached by another and who has the, the, the requisite experience, capacity and willingness to, to help by giving guidance, giving instruction, showing or manifesting or, or uh, pointing out an example, whether externally or internally in the student's own experience, by eliciting some experience and saying, this is an example of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So someone who has these natural, you know, or, or developed and harnessed and, and cultivated abilities, capacities, and the willingness to do that. But eventually the, the actual status of the teacher comes from the student. I mean, if no one wants you for a teacher, you can't be a teacher. You can claim to be a teacher, but you're just the head of a, on an organization or a church or something like that. You don't teach actually anything. You just say things, you know. So for example, you know, Pope, you know, is not a teacher in that sense. He's not a spiritual director, would be a, the technical word used in the Christian tradition, spiritual director uh, or spiritual guide in certain, you know, contexts. These people teach individuals. So transmission, uh, transmission is a, is, is a problematic uh, word because it, it smacks of uh, 19th century esotericism. Uh, where something is being transmitted, you know. And the kind of language used in the Zen and some other traditions where we hear of transmission of the lamp, for example. Uh, the lamp is a metaphor for awareness or knowing. And awareness and knowing are not transmitted, you know. It's just a metaphor. It's, it's a metaphor how, how, for example, inspiration uh, moves from one person to another. Uh, so when we talk about transmission, we very often talk about formalized formalized instruction and inspiration something like that now when someone has a respectable degree of of attainment or realization or experience uh, knowledge capacity then uh, another person can find great inspiration and resonance uh, and use that person as a guide teacher example etc etc but it's not like there ever occurs a moment where something is transmitted from one person to another so various similes and metaphors have been used for what transmission is like, like passing a fire from one candle to another, for example. Mm. You know, I mean, you don't transmit the, you don't transmit the flame because the, the old candle keeps burning, right? If, if it was transmitted, the old candle would go out. So it's more like spreading or resonance or starting something in another that is already in, alive in you, that kind of thing. So uh, it could be thought of also as... Uh, spreading a disease you know <laughs> what do you call it uh, a virus oh uh, yeah yeah like transmitting a virus you know is that kind of transmission a wisdom virus you know mm. an awareness virus you know but that's not what happens actually a teacher's task is as i said to give instructions to point out places where the student is stuck and also to serve as as an example when it's when it's appropriate for certain you know for certain possibilities but other than that, a teacher can also create conditions around the student or in the student for certain natural possibilities to arise. So it's not that you transmit something to another. Transmission never really takes place. Although you can experience it like that and relate to it like that, it's, it's, you know, it's just a poetic metaphor for something. So that's, that's what I have to say about it. I, I don't even like using the word unless uh, re relating to something that happened 300 years ago. 
Okay. Yeah. So why don't we talk about maps? Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer not to talk about maps, but we've had several questions about them, so we should we should honor. Uh, well, we, we, yeah, we can honor that, but it's even worse than community and transmission and all that. Maps are the best thing in the world because they give you some idea about where you're going and what you can expect there. Maps are also the worst thing in the world because they give you some idea of where you're going and what you can expect there. So, you know, it can go both ways. Yeah. I mean, maps, relying on maps uh, can uh, seriously encourage you to have expectations. Expectations are the opposite of having a clear idea about what you're doing. <laughs> They're the opposite. <laughs> you know, the expectations are about what should be happening. Yeah. Not about what you're doing. You should see what's happening and you should know when it's different from, from what you intended. But there's no shoulds there. Absolutely no shoulds. It's not that you should experience this after you have experienced that. It's about coulds. Mm. It's not about oughts or musts or whatever, you know, the other English words are. Have tos. Have tos, yeah. And all of these, as you know, have their opposites. So where there's a should, there's a should not. Where there's an ought, there's an ought not. Where there's a have to, there's a... Mustn't. Mustn't. Yes. You know? So you get all those, you know, all those twists and, you know, and, and deformations in one's attitude with practice. You know, it should conform to something and you know just as art when your practice must conform it's dead it's dead it's that simple i think that maps are useful if you use them as a representation of something that you know that that should or could be happening yeah uh maps generically uh make it clear that this is a dialectical development meaning certain things need to happen before other things can happen so it's a gradual, you know, path. It doesn't happen all at once. And secondly, certain things need to stop happening before something can happen. That's also very important with all the maps. Now, the problem that I find with maps is that they never tell you how wildly, how wildly different and divergent individual experiences belonging into the same phase may be. So, for example, even if you take the very basic uh, idea of the three meditational states of clarity, stillness, and bliss, or whatever other language is usually used, clarity can be experienced as extreme confusion, but it's usually not mentioned. Stillness can be experienced as being paralyzed, but it's usually not mentioned. And, you know, bliss can be experienced as opening to unimaginable pain in your body, in your heart, and feeling it freely. But that's not how it's usually presented, right? It's, it's just a bliss, right? So people think, oh, rapture. So uh, the other problem with maps is that you have one group going with this map, and then you have another group going with another map. Uh, and then this... And which one is better? Yeah, and the first group says, like, you know... Your map covers just the first half of our map. 
right? So your map is kind of accurate, but it doesn't go far enough, you know? I mean, most of us are not even on your map anymore. Yeah. Can mystical ways of practice ever be divorced from religious systems, symbolism, language? I suspect not, but I'd be interested to hear. Okay. Not entirely, Yeah. but it's an ongoing process. Just like art can never be completely divorced from the history of art. Yeah. Because it would make absolutely no sense. And, and then again, what are religious systems and symbols, you know? As opposed to which other systems and symbols? Can mystical practice be completely divorced from all systems and symbols? Eventually, yeah, maybe there's a phase in that, but then you go back to systems and symbols. Systems and symbols are ways of meeting the world in terms of human society. That's it. Language is a system, language is a symbol. Uh, you know, a collection, a system of symbols, mm -hmm. right? And and so are the organizational forms and so are the, you know, ways of living along with others without going to war. Even the war is a system. It's a symbol or so, etc., etc. So you can't completely separate it from systems and symbols, but you can be aware that systems and symbols are systems and symbols, not more and not less. Mm. That's the best you can do. Okay, does Hokai have any general advice for mystical practice in the midst of normal life? Yeah, work with everything. That's it. Until you work with everything, you are still trying to practice in the midst of life. Mm. As I said in the beginning, you know, practice doesn't take place in the midst of life. Life should take place in the midst of your practice, while you're practicing. So, never stop practicing, work with everything. Until you do, you haven't started. Okay, the next one's long, but the question I think is really at the end. Are we really getting beyond what we can define, or are we escaping into mystical fantasy? Vagaries of awareness and experience, and the intricacies of different modes of knowing, these can be discussed and defined to the pleasure of participants, you know, between those who do the necessary work. Again, you know, those who don't do the work day in, day out, I mean, what's the point of even making the distinction between what goes beyond definition and what's just mystical fantasy? I mean, who's asking? You know, try and live your mystical fantasies and see where it gets you. I mean, test it, you know? If you have enough time to test fantasies, you know, just stay safe, you know? Don't try to fly <laughs> by jumping from high, you know? Test your fantasies. Is it real? You know, am I just making shit up, right? See what happens. There's a number of ways of going about this, but the, the, the answer in, in one word would be engage. Engage this, you know, eventually you'll, you'll know. Is it just beyond words or is it just a fancy? Yeah. Is there an end goal? What hope does it feed and or sustain? No hope, no aspiration. This is one of, uh, you know, standard answers to this kind of question. No fear. That's, that's a kind of end, but it's also not to end. It's a beginning of a new relationship to everything. Mm. If there's no hope, there's no fear. If there's no aspiration, there's complete, you know, acceptance of what is. And in that case, there's a natural response to what needs to be done, not based on some kind of, you know, projection, which is what we usually mean by aspiration. We project something, right, into the future, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's a kind of a goal. I know it's a downer and, and it's a kind of, a, you know, anti-goal. In, in classical, you know, in, in conventional terms. Intimacy is, is the goal, perhaps, you know, intimacy with everything that comes at you. Meeting everything uh, fully, completely. 
coming out of every situation without any residue to meet to meet a new situation. That's that's a kind of a goal, but I must say, you know, it's not something that can be, you know, really really aspired to. It's something that you can tempt towards, you know, and you can you 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 can you can run, you know, towards, but it's it's a little bit like a rainbow. You know, you never really get there. Uh, but you know, you keep getting there. <laughs> you keep getting there. So these kinds of things, you know, is there an end? Something can be aspired to, something can be moved towards. But I would best describe it in, in negative terms. No hope, no fear, no expectation, just intimacy. Oh. So number 15 is, how do you view the whole idea of post-traditional Buddhism these days since holding the workshop you did for Buddhist geeks, where you first discussed it? Didn't you write a piece about that recently? <clears throat> I did recently, yeah, because yeah, I was asked uh, by, by someone who, who I take very seriously and uh, I was uh, compelled to uh, put my statement, you know, uh, in writing. So yeah, that piece I put online or, on what it means these days for me, mm. it just means that I'm, I'm kind of, you know, embracing a, a, an absurdist, an absurdist <laughs> approach to, to these ideas of tradition, modernism and, and, and you know how to move beyond tradition, how to how to stay, you know, faithful to tradition. And yeah, if anyone is interested you can look at that piece. Thank you, Hokai. We've got to the Are end we done? Of, uh, we've got to the end of our questions. Uh, there was one or two more, but I I'm running out of time at this point. Yeah we all are. Thank you for coming on and answering uh, listeners' questions. I hope they get something out of this. I think they will. It's been an interesting um, discourse. I must say that it's difficult to answer a question and take it seriously without seeing the face mm. of the person asking it, really. Mm, 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 you know, I mean, you just have no idea where it's coming from. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do the best we can and we muddle through. And yeah. Well, thank you for your dedication to this work. I know you are making good money out of it. <laughs> of course. And I know you are warping time, you know, to be with, with, with your wife and, and son and at work and here simultaneously. It's a miracle, yes. You know, I know you do all these things. <sighs> yeah, you, and yes. thank you for that. And uh, if I can help in any way for you to continue doing this, just <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Great. We'll end on that note. Take care, listeners, for now. Bye. Yeah. Bye.